That funny feeling women get in the pit of their stomach, or a voice that tells them about something they normally would not know, is called intuition by some. As humans, most of us, including men, are familiar with this experience. Intuition may have saved you from taking the busiest road to work, or helped you pick winning lottery numbers. Where does intuition come from? Does it really exist? Carolyn Kunzel, a graduate student at Concordia University, is working on a master's project on intuition. She's trying to unravel the mysteries of intuition with her own funny feelings that there is a lot more to the sixth sense than meets the third eye. Where does our knowledge come from, right? And sometimes our knowledge comes from, you know, sort of the standard way we think about it, from reading books, going to school, getting an education. But a lot of other knowledge that we have, we just already have. And so I started wondering, you know, where that, came, where that knowledge came from. And that's kind of how I got to the idea of intuition. Carolyn has read many books, from the popular that give advice on how to improve intuition to the academic ones that call intuition extra-discursive knowledge. She is also involved with acupuncture and voice lessons that are helping with her research. In everything she has come across, there is one understanding of intuition that continually comes up. Intuition is a kind of knowledge that comes from that comes from the body. We often refer to the body when we when we talk about it. Like we, we say things like, you know, I just had a gut feeling about something or, you know, the expression, uh, you know, just just follow your nose, you know, see where you see where it takes you. So it's really like, you know, literally in, in our language we talk about it in terms of the body as something that we experience. It it is just something like the little voice inside of you, for example, right? It's it's again we talk about it as something that's inside of us. That got me thinking about, uh, yeah, what, what is body knowledge? How do we get it? And, 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 and also thinking about who uses that kind of knowledge. Some of the people who use this knowledge are women and fortune tellers, Carolyn has discovered. She cites palm reading as being another intuitive activity using an aspect of the body, the hand. She's looking into fortune telling as part of her research as well. Roz is a female psychic and spiritual healer who says it was perfectly healthy guidance that led her to sit beside me outside a library for us to do an interview. She works with addicts to heal them in a spiritual way. Roz's first miracle with intuition was when she was three years old. An older cousin locked her in the garage for three hours. She was calm and unafraid the whole time, intuitively knowing that she would be all right. I was born with a gift that allows me uh, to read people and feel energy uh, through rocks and crystals, uh, through the medium of the tarot as well, uh, so that I can uh, provide people with information about their past, their present, and their future, um, and uh, to also guide them. This is not strictly fortune-telling. This has nothing to do with it. It's in, in intuitive work. Uh, that feeds uh, people with energy to open up and to listen to their own intuition. Roz was able to predict the exact time and date of her partner's death. It came to her as a vision, and light is always associated with her intuitive experiences. Sister Mechalina Bertoni, who works at the Montreal Pastoral Counseling Center and also guides people spiritually, has a perspective on where intuition comes from that is linked to Carolyn's idea of intuition being body knowledge and Roz's spiritual experiences with it. Knowing something in an intuitive uh, way is listening to the feelings within and even more than the feelings, it's uh, at a deeper level 
listening to the movement of the spirit. Angelo, a short order cook, believes and disbelieves in intuition. He thinks it exists, but from his own experience, some people use it as a form of procrastination. I said when I was about 22, 23 years old, I said, I'm going to retire at 35. And it was in my mind, my intuitions were telling me that that's what I was going to do. And that's what was going to happen to me. But being lazy and not procrastinating, it just don't come true. Angela believes that women have a stronger intuition than men do. Whether or not this is true, there are some women who don't believe in intuition. Dr. Mary Grossman is a professor of nursing at McGill University. Mary thinks intuition is overrated and not as unique as people think it is. She does not believe in it. In her opinion, and through research she has done at the doctorate level, intuition is not the kind of knowledge that works best in health professions. Very um, frequently, the public and nurses, when they uh, have had this notion that, oh, nurses, you know, they rely on their intuition to um, assess um, uh, clinical situations. And I really wanted to examine what that actually meant because I uh, have a very strong bias that I would not want to be cared for by a nurse who relied exclusively on her intuition. For Mary, intuition is not dependable knowledge. What some call intuition, she sees as based on knowledge that is from repetitive experiences of observation and sensitivity to environment registered at a subconscious level. She says in her occupation, education is most important. Mary completed her research on intuition about 10 years ago, and it has led to emphasize the educational aspects rather than the intuitive practices in her teaching of nurses. Carolyn will be completing her research in another year. She is hoping that her research will have a different effect on the messages she wants to give others about intuition. She wants people to be more in touch with their bodies and rely on the information it gives you, and not just solely relying on the mind for knowledge. This is Donica Conge for RCI in Montreal. to Ryerson for four years and when I completed that I didn't do much in the field I did a little bit of um, set design exhibit design but actually after that I, I changed a couple of times my career <laughs> and I ended up here at Chevello. Carrie Ivanishin a color technician at a hair salon in Toronto has had careers from adding color and life to people's homes as an interior designer dressing stage sets and now adds a certain je ne sais quoi to people's hair kind of was searching around but it had to be you know very people oriented and I and had to have an element of design and color and I and I've been here eight years and I'm still loving it. As a kid she never quite knew what she was going to do. Carrie's dream job when she was younger was baking cakes but at 15 she would play around with her blonde hair highlighting the strands. She says working as a color technician has brought her back to her roots. But yeah, I think, you know, I was born one of those Nordic blonde babies, and then as soon as I started getting a bit older, and in my, my little teenage years, my mother was horrified that my hair was turning into a nice, ashy, mousy blonde, so she had me right to the hairdressers, and ever since then, it's been an ongoing trip that my aunt, my mother, my sister, we all get together and go to the salon, and we'd be seeing um, somebody who ended up having a baby and working out of her own home. 
So in, in that regard, it became a very desirable um, field in terms of that you can actually work from home. Carrie explains how her client, Sharon Stratford, has made switches. And I think, Sharon, you have changed your career how many times? <laughs> well, I've uh, gone from business to, um, let me see here, psychology, where I worked as therapist and counselor, and then I've gone into education. So I'm a teacher, been guidance counselor, now I coordinate learning disability programs. Carrie has been doing Sharon's hair for seven years, and they have established a special bond. I don't care. What you think about that? Another person who made a switch in careers is Michael O'Brien. I don't care what you think about this. I started working for Imperial Tobacco when I was in my early 20s. Uh, I worked the territory of Windsor, which of course meant a lot of time in Detroit. And then I worked in Toronto. From selling the evil weed for a living, he made the switch to professional musician when he met Ronnie Hawkins. He ended up offering me a job while I was employed by uh, both Imperial Tobacco and Bic, uh, working for his uh, whole conglomerate of companies that he had. So finally, uh, Bic Pens gave me a promotion the week after I got married. To, be the sales, to become the sales manager of the Maritime Provinces. And it just seemed like a big move at the time, so I went and took the job with Ronnie. Now Michael is concentrating on his latest music project, Carolina Blues, his own CD, and the raising of his kids. <laughs> Lorraine Scott is a singer with four Juno nominations who's backed big names such as Jeff Healy and Celine Dion. club dates. I also am in a wedding band, which, you know, for the last five years I've been in this wedding band, which is great. Uh, different groups I substitute with, you know, at different functions. So I'm not actually peddling any original music at, at this time in my career. Uh, been there, done that. Lorraine used her singing career to enter the world of design. How I got into the designing was that when I did have CDs and LPs out and was on a label, I needed different looks for stage, for stage and for the videos. So I started designing hats, which, you know, seemed like, you know, could be really funky like that. That's where I really started the sewing. Lorraine continued her sewing and moved into the area of interior design. Her specialty is using African fabrics. Along with the business of singing, she runs her own design business with about 50 jobs a year. Carrie also has plans to work more with her interior design skills in the future. Everyone has dreams, of course. My, my future plan is to be here doing Sharon's hair until I'm on crutches See, or and that's what I want to hear. I want to know she's always going to be here for me. You always have to be there for them. Um, you know what? I haven't hit the Super 7, but I love what I do, so I'm going to be here for a little while. Uh, because I love interior design, hopefully that's going to get, you know, reflected into my life a little bit more as I get a bit older, and everyone wants a balance. Carrie says it was a bumpy road while she has switched careers, but she's doing what she loves. It's worth it. I'm Donna Kakonge in Toronto.
Sometimes it takes many tries and several ways to find a spark that will light up your life. If you're lucky, with the right spark, you can find the love of your life. Melissa and Marco Pilon found that love by firing up the computer and chatting online. They first met via the internet in May of 1997 and chatted for six months. Out of the blue in December, he said you should come on down and come over to Montreal where I live and visit with my family and meet me in person and I thought okay that sounds like fun. So uh, I hopped on a plane and I went out to see him. Uh, we spent a week with his parents in a small town called St. Michel des Saints. Um, it, was, it was interesting meeting his family. I'm sure they all thought it was very bizarre. That I'm, here's this strange girl they've never met and I'm coming in and living with them for a week and they were really accepting of me and very nice and uh, they're very friendly. Marco later came to Toronto with Melissa. He didn't spend long. Well, basically what happened is that after the three weeks, I had to go back home. So that's what I did. Then I had a few things to take care of and everything. So um, then afterwards, after when I was there, I, I was pretty much miserable. So what I decided to do is just come here to Toronto and live here and see what happens. Steve tried to find a match by letting his fingers work on a connection. He's been on telephone chat lines on and off for six years. Just like Melissa and Marco, he was looking for a good match. You know, me being 47 now, a lot of my friends have, you know, commitments. They have children's mortgages and, and things like that. So they, they don't have a lot of free time. And um, I just thought I'd try and find someone, a friend, just to do stuff with because a lot of times I just would be at home on weekends not do much I don't like bars I'm not in the bar scene and it looks like the phone line would be one alternative to that you know where you don't even have to leave your house and you can chat with people and hopefully if there's uh, chemistry or, or kind of common interest um, you can wind up meeting a friend Steve has had some good experiences chatting to women we had a really nice conversation where we just buried each other's soul sort of um she opened up and, um, you know, instead of the old bullet to saying, oh, what I've done or accomplishments and how great you are, you know, telling about we have real problems and real things and issues that were going on and, you know, just opening up with what was going on in their lives at that moment. And um, it was nice, I think, for the person to share it with me. And, um, you know, I shared things about I don't talk to about other people too much. And, you know, she was close by in the neighborhood, just down the street. And it was very convenient though we could uh, we wound up seeing each other for you know quite frequently after that and uh, talking almost every day on the phone and it was a really positive thing. Steve says it's hard for him to find suitable women these days. He even met a woman at a coffee shop who brought her pet rabbit on the date. I was more concerned about the, the rabbit and whether this woman can actually responsibly look after this rabbit, especially in the situation. Now, I had to go in the washroom, and when I came back out, Tim Hortons, the rabbit was loose, running around in the middle of Yonge Street. I had to run in front of a car, grab the rabbit, almost got killed, and then they just wound up screaming at the lady and saying, why did you bring this rabbit? You can get the thing killed. And, like, I was really mad and upset. And I said, you should never take it home with you. You don't even handle the, the rabbit properly. Why are you putting in a paper bag? As hard as it can be to light a match sometimes, it can be many times harder to find a true match online or on a chat line. Melissa and Marco did it, and they're building a life together. 
living proof that electronic dating can work. I don't know, it's hard, but we make it work because we love each other and we want it to work. So he's my best friend for sure. So <clears throat> it's easy to make it work. I think it's easy. It's meant to be. Well, she's, she's definitely easy to live with and we don't fight, we don't argue. Nobody believes that. We've, we've been together six and a half years and we've never had a fight. Nobody believes that, but it's true. <laughs> Melissa and Marco are going strong after five years of marriage. Their anniversary is coming up in August. I'm Donna Kakonge in Toronto. Saint-Hubert, Papineau, René Lévesque, and Sherbrooke. That's where the main establishment for the gay life is concentrated. It's not exclusively there, but most of the commerce are there. Tour guide Maurice Landry takes a small group of tourists and Montrealers through the downtown of the city, beginning in the gay village. Unlike many tours of Montreal, where you spend hours sitting on a bus, this tour gets you walking. The tours have existed for only a few weeks and are being organized by the Chambre du Commerce Gay du Québec. Fermand Gonfrend heads up the commerce and after being unsatisfied with other tours given by non-gays on gay culture, he contacted Maurice Landry. Landry is well prepared for the role as tour guide. He has a graduate degree in musicology from Amsterdam and is used to developing content. Landry developed the historical content for the tour from the archives Gay du Québec. This gives these tours a different way of looking at Montreal, from the historical elements of gay culture done by gay people for everyone, says Landry. Uh, when you were speaking earlier about people that were originally running these tours were sort of perpetuating, projecting stereotypes and, and prejudices. Um, what, what is an example of some of those stereotypes or prejudices that they were doing that, that, that this tour is correcting? Uh, one aspect was they were talking about the ghetto here in the village, which is not a ghetto. It's just the concentration of commerce, which is along the St. Catherine Street. But in the centre-sud, this area of the city, there is only 20% of gay living in the area. There's still a lot of people. There's still a lot of different organizations. There is two churches. There is Radio, Radio Canada. There is restaurants. There is a lot of people. And this is not a fact. It's not a ghetto. It's just the concentration of commerce on St. Catherine Street, which has a reason in history. And we will be seeing this through the tour. La même orientation sexuelle. Donc, Oscar Wilde a peut-être été mis au courant. Là, on est vraiment là dans vie sexuelle chez les Amérindiens. C'est fort différent de ce qui se passe dans les communautés. Euh, française, anglaise ou des choses comme ça. D'abord, il n'y a pas de morale judéo-chrétienne. Donc la réalité sexuelle est fort différente et à l'arrivée des euh, premiers Européens... Landry explains that historically the sexual life of Amerindians was valorized. Sex was seen as a need. This is unlike Judeo-Christian societies which have historically and consistently had a more conservative view of sex for procreation. Amerindians' view of sex also gave them a positive perspective on gay people, calling those who were gay too-spirited. 
Danny Coteau is an educator who lives in Montreal. He's come on the tour because he is getting information that he did not receive in school. I think it's a good complementary uh, exercise. I had a, a bachelor in geography and at the university they don't talk about uh, a lot about the village and the story. So I think uh, in a tour like this you can have uh, more information about that. Danny is having a good time. No. <laughs> <laughs> and so is Philippe Conil from Paris. Et puis j'étais intéressé par les tours gays. Donc j'ai téléphoné à la chambre de commerce gay. Philippe says he was interested in the gay tour and telephoned the commerce gay. He sees the history of other cultures, including gay culture, as important. Bonjour. Hello. At Passion, a gay-owned store located in the village, Mike Smart greets a customer. He has co-owned the gift boutique for about a year, and from a business perspective, he encourages what the Chambre du Commerce Gay is doing. Anything that sort of makes gay tourism more part of tourism in general, you know? You don't have to be a gay tourist to come and visit the village and shop. How is this uh, history that uh, you're sharing with everyone, how does it uh, impact on uh, gay society here in Montreal today? I mean, if we, if we are, uh, like some, uh, a lot of people are saying, Montreal is a gay-friendly city, and if we can find gays which are living openly and uh, free and doesn't hide anymore, it's largely due to the fact that previous to us, some people uh, put and decided to put, uh, go into action. All these facts has brought us to what we are today, more proud, less ashamed, and live as normal being, normal human being. This is Donica Kange for RCI Mon uh, I do Garrett's and uh, once in a week. And all things I saw, it's not my personal uh, object. Uh, it's it's uh, things I picking in the garbage, people they throw in the garbage. Etienne Lapointe wakes up at 6 in the morning to do his work. He walks a main street like Papineau in Montreal with his blue knapsack to pick up one person's junk and his treasure. They throw so many things, you won't believe it. All kind of uh, things can be jewelry, gold, silver, uh, can be art, African uh, art, uh, uh, dishes, uh, clothes and everything. Weeks ago, he found a cufflink button in 18 karat gold that weighed about half an ounce or 16 grams. He finds lots of gold and jewelry, silver as well. He also finds antiques. Lapointe gives a reason why he is able to find so much valuable stuff to sell in Montreal. Once in, uh, every week, uh, there's about uh, 250,000 persons move. It's a big party uh, in Montreal. And as many times they move, and uh, 
smallest apartment or biggest apartment, you know. And when they move, they want to uh, start again with a new stock. So they throw the uh, the, old, uh, the stock they had the the other apartment and they throw in the garbage to bring a new stock because they go in a new quartier, a new uh, neighbor, new area, and everything. And they want to be uh, try to be on the same level that. Uh, the new area, the area they come in. Lapointe believes a phenomenon like the frequent moving in Montreal does not happen anywhere else in the world. He scouts the streets. His treasures are in garbage bags. He has a special technique to sort out the real junk from the treasure in the bags. I touch the bag by outside. Just try to feeling the object inside of the bag because I don't want to open the bag because sometimes can be dangerous that broken glass or a, a cut metal or a knife, whatever, you know, so I have to be careful with that. And uh, I touch the bag, I, uh, lift up the bag and uh, squeeze the bag like, uh, you know, to hear the noise, to hear different kind of noise, uh, different kind of sounds metal sound, glass sound, uh, pottery sound, now, all those uh, things make different sounds, you know. So you can, uh, just by the uh, noise, uh, noise, you can hear what kind of stuff they have in the bag. Lapointe says the jewelry always seems to go to the bottom. He saves works of art by artists that have been thrown out. With all the poverty in Montreal, Lapointe does not understand how people could throw these things away, but it gives him work he enjoys. No, I love my job. I'm independent. I can start when I want to work. I wake up early in the morning. I start to work at 6 because there's no competition. There's nobody uh, picking garbage uh, at 6 o'clock in the morning, so I get the best, uh, better start. He does his garage sales on Saturdays, sometimes Sundays if there is rain. He spends the rest of his week going to movies, theater, and reading. And with his headphones always dressing his ears, he listens to CBC Radio in French religiously. This is Donica Conge for Radio Canada International, Montreal. Hi, Luanne. Hello. What's this about? A series that we're counting on all you folks out there listening to uh, participate in. Oh, well, um, interactive. It's called On a Personal Note. Does that give you a hint? Okay. Um, Not per- really. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> per, uh, a series to get people from different backgrounds, different ages... Different perspectives, different cultures on the air, and not in an interview format. And from there, we're wide open. There's all different ways that you can come forward. You know, the easiest thing to think of, I think, is in a way the back page of the Global Mail, mail uh, the first section. You know, those wonderful kind of personal yeah, essays yeah, that, yeah. that take you into different moments of life. It could be predicament. It could be uh, an unusual pleasure. Just the kinds of of stories that we don't normally get on the air in our regular programs, you know, where we're kind of following the events and and uh, so just to hear new voices that Absolutely. we wouldn't normally hear. Absolutely, yeah, and yeah. and it can be d- you know, any kind of age, you know, it, you know, if a ten-year-old's got a great story to tell, but it's got to be something that 
has a slight, you know, insight to it or a slight edge. Um, some of the pieces that uh, we are going to hear over the next couple of weeks, um, we're going to hear uh, somebody talking about tree planting as a, as a rite of passage. You know, it used I to like be that. that you get conscripted into the army. Yeah. Uh, that's not the case anymore, but tree planting, it's a little bit like going into the army. And if you survive it, you've got lots of stories. And you I feel, had no idea it was that, that complex. You feel that you're tough. Um, another story from an Algerian woman who uh, was set up in an arranged marriage, which didn't turn out well, and mm. what, that, what that's like. Um, we're going to hear from somebody whose mother was a beautiful model, I mean a, a supermodel, and what it's like to be brought up by someone who's absolutely knock them down dead gorgeous and who wants you to be gorgeous at all times and how you have to explain to your friends, no, um, my mother won't let me wear cut off jeans and, and Birkenstocks. This sounds really fascinating. So there, I mean, actually, there's all the whole, kinds of yeah. possibilities. How, how know, can people take part? Well, um, I think that what people should do is give me a call, Luana Boulanger at 597 4484. You can also send a fax, 597-4511. So many faxes come in uh, upstairs that a I think, that I think a phone call yeah. is better. And, and bounce your idea, and, um, and I'll get back to you. And uh, Now, people will get help. Absolutely. Presenting Absolutely. these ideas, yes. right? No, You're not I work with people. Leave you dangling. No, no, or no I work. Yeah. I work with people in the script and come into studio and we record it. And it's a very, I think it's a painless process. And uh, and I'm open to all different kinds of formats. You know, if you want to hang upside down with a microphone from your homemade trapeze act, I mean, just convince <laughs> me. No, we're not just going for wacko, but convince me that you have an interesting perspective yeah. on that angle. Yeah, I, as I'm sure you would. <laughs> <laughs> upside down. What are we going to start with? All right, the first one we're going to hear is um, uh, a woman who, who's black and what it's like to grow up wishing that you had long, blonde, brunette, any color hair but black, as long as it's long and straight and you can toss it over, over your shoulders, and how she comes to a gradual acceptance of herself, her hair, her black, kinky hair. On a personal note, Get a group of black women together and the conversation usually turns to hair. If I had a dollar for every time I've heard a black woman's hair story, talked about my own hair, seen people talking about hair in a movie, or read about hair in a book, well, I could buy a lot of hair. I used to think I was the only one who changed my hair just about every week. But now I know that many other women have permed, straightened, colored, cut, lengthened, and shortened their hair as often as I have. When I was a child, my first hobby was playing hairdresser to my Barbie dolls. I grew up in the 70s and 80s, but I was not much different from black children in the 40s. Back then, black children chose white dolls over black dolls in the landmark study that led to the desegregation of American schools. It was not that I preferred creamy white skin over chocolate. It just came down to hair. I wanted straight, long, blonde, brunette, or red hair. Hair that blew in the wind. Hair that I could toss over my shoulder. And when wishing it didn't make it appear on my head, I used a towel instead. As I grew older, I spent many years in hair salons turning my head of curly hair dead straight walking out of salons with the wind blowing through my hair and tossing it over my shoulder. Who says wishes do not come true for a price? 
Although straight mean black hair is known as perming, there was never anything permanent about it for me. There was a war happening on my head. If my hair represented a people, the curly strands were being ethnically cleansed by straight strands with the use of chemical warfare. Yet despite the chemicals, I've always loved the atmosphere of a salon. In this predominantly white country, black hair salons create a black world. During the civil rights movement, North American barbershops and hair salons became town halls for discussions on race relations. Even now, a hair salon in South Carolina is being used to educate people about AIDS. Places for hair are no strangers to political activity. And it is in a salon that I found peace with the politics happening on my own head. Hairdressers looking at my natural hair and not opening up a jar of bone straight made me rejoice in the hair God gave me. Professor and author Gloria Wade Gales once said, My hair would be a badge, a symbol of my pride, a statement of self-affirmation. Well, it has taken me a long time, but I finally agree. I'm Donica Conge in Montreal. It wasn't only in the States that people had slaves. In the early days of this country, many white people kept slaves too. Many white men stole the lives of blacks with slavery. In return, many of these slaves stole from their masters. In the case of Freelove Hazard Allen, her life was also returned by slave owners. Freelove Hazard Allen was a slave of a colonel in Charlottetown. She became the key figure in a trial for theft. In the spring of 1796, she was charged with theft, along with her husband and another male slave. All three were described as servants of the colonel. The theft took place in the barracks of the commanding officers on March 21, 1796. Freelove admitted to stealing coins and clothing with a value of 25 pounds, but she gave no reason for her actions. Freelove's husband and the other slave were accused of aiding the crime and accepting stolen goods. The judge in the case owned a slave. One of the assistant judges owned four slaves. The other assistant judge had been robbed by a slave a year earlier. There were at least three slave owners among the jurors. It was clear to Freelove that she wouldn't get a break in this courtroom. Section 18 of the Act relating to treasons and felonies made embezzlement by slaves with a value over 40 shillings or two pounds a felony. Hanging was mandatory on conviction. Freelove's husband and the other slave involved were convicted of receiving stolen goods. They were acquitted on the charge of inciting and aiding Freelove to commit the crime. The men got branded with a T for theft on the palm of their left hands and received 500 lashes on their bare backs. After that, they returned to jail until each could post a bond to keep the peace. Freelove was convicted of larceny and sentenced to death. She was scheduled to hang April 5, 1796. Many white women in Charlottetown didn't want to see Freelove hang. A petition was started right away to save her life. The petition with 33 signatures was sent to the lieutenant governor. The petition had some conditions. It said that Freelove acknowledged her crime and would agree to be indentured for life and sent to the West Indies or elsewhere and sold. If she returned to PEI, she would be executed.
Freelove agreed to the conditions. Since she was illiterate, her signature of X was marked for her by one of her sympathizers. The women who signed the petition displayed a sisterhood with Freelove. Petitions for clemency were common, yet they almost never were made for women. Perhaps that's why it was a success. On May 9, 1796, Freelove was given 40 days to leave Prince Edward Island. That is the last heard of Freelove Hazard Allen. It is assumed she left Canada alive and never returned. I'm Donna Kakonge. When my feet first touched the Canada shore, I threw myself on the ground, rolled in the sand, seized handfuls of it and kissed them, and danced around, till in the eyes of several who were present, I passed for a madman. Those are the words of Josiah Henson, an American slave who found freedom in Upper Canada. Josiah is the most famous and controversial slave to come to Canada. It is rumored that Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, was based on Josiah. Josiah was born on a plantation in Maryland on June 15, 1789. He learned about the cruelty of slavery early, when his brothers and sisters were sold. His father also tried to defend his mother from the insults of an overseer. For that, Josiah's father received 100 lashes and his ear was cut off. Josiah ended up growing up alone with his mother. When he was old enough, he was sold to another plantation owner. At the age of 21, he married. He and his wife had 12 children. Eight of them survived. Because Josiah worked hard and was loyal to his master, he was put in charge of the master's farm. Later, Josiah's master got into debt and had to sell his farm, so Josiah went to work for the master's brother in Kentucky. Josiah, his family, and 28 other slaves traveled by foot to reach the Kentucky plantation. While in Cincinnati, the other slaves encouraged Josiah to follow them to freedom in Canada. But because Josiah was loyal to his former master, he refused and turned the other slaves in. Josiah stayed with his new owner for three years. In that time, he moved from field hand to manager to unofficial overseer. He was also given more spare time. He used this time to become a Methodist Episcopal preacher. He saved his earnings so he could buy his freedom. They agreed on a price of $450. But Josiah was illiterate, and his new owner cheated on the documents. When Josiah found out about the betrayal, he planned his escape. Choosing a day in September of 1830, when his owner was away, Josiah fled with his family, hiding by day and traveling by night. For three years after, Josiah worked as a farmer in Upper Canada near Fort Erie in Niagara. His 12-year-old son taught Josiah how to read, and he became the local preacher. Josiah would encourage blacks to save their money, buy land collectively, and farm. Josiah began having the idea of developing a self-supporting black community. He formed the Dawn Settlement in southern Ontario. Josiah had strong convictions that he preached about on his widespread travels. They were the importance of farming, owning land, and British patriotism. Josiah Henson's last words were on May 5, 1883. I'm Donna Kakonge. 
John Ware stands out in the cowboy history of Alberta. He was born into slavery in the American South around 1845. He spent his youth picking cotton in South Carolina. When he left the plantation of his birth, he worked for many years rounding up horses in Texas. His fame grew with his equestrian talents. After that, he headed north to Alberta. John arrived in Alberta in 1882. He started working for a ranch there. The rancher was hesitant to hire him at first. As a pioneer, John was a man of action rather than words. He commanded the respect of his fellow cowboys, a difficult thing for a black man in those days. Ten years after John settled in Alberta, he married. By 1900, John and his wife had five children. His wife did the bookkeeping for the ranch and taught the children how to read and write. He was a strong man. One day, John was taking his family for a ride in a horse-drawn buggy. The horses were struck by lightning, causing John to unhitch the team and pull the buggy back to his farm himself. He moved from the Calgary area to the banks of the Red Deer River in 1902. They bought several hundred acres of land and built a cabin with spruce logs on the river bank. But trouble soon followed. The river flooded and the Ware family almost lost their lives as their home was swept away by water. John saved what logs he could and rebuilt the cabin on higher ground overlooking the stream. That stream is now called Ware Creek. The family was not in their new home for long. In the spring of 1905, John's wife died of pneumonia. In September of the same year, John was killed while riding a horse that tripped and crushed him, breaking his neck. The influence John had on his community was shown by the fact his funeral was the largest in the young city's history. His children went to live with their grandparents. The Ware's Rosebud Log House is now in Dinosaur Park as a tribute to one of Alberta's pioneer families. I'm Donna Kakonge. Marianne Shad Carey lived a multifaceted life as a teacher, political activist, journalist, and lawyer in the 19th century. Not an easy feat for a woman born in the United States in 1822 as a free black. Growing up in Delaware and Pennsylvania, she was the eldest of 13 children. Her father was a successful boot manufacturer, and Mary knew a life of comfort. Politically active, Mary's father was involved in the abolitionist movement, and his interests were passed on to his children. Despite the fact the Shad family were wealthy, Mary had problems receiving an education in Delaware. Blacks were not allowed to go to school. In Pennsylvania, with a growing anti-black sentiment, Mary's parents paid for her private education with the Quakers. Even with the advantages Mary had compared to many blacks of that time, because she was a woman, only certain professions were open to her. She became a teacher. British North America abolished slavery in 1833. Mary, at the age of 28, took advantage of this by seeking refuge in this country in the fall of 1851. She settled in Windsor. Mary taught black children. She also exercised her passion for political writing by publishing her pro-Canada pamphlet, Notes on Canada West, in 1852. Mary faced multiple layers of racism and sexism inside and outside the black community. Because she was light-skinned and part of the black elite, this drew resentment from other blacks. 
Later on, Mary's love of writing and politics led her to become the editor of the Provincial Freeman. This paper had correspondence in Ontario with subscribers across Canada and the U.S. Mary lived an unconventional private life for a woman of those times. She married a businessman and activist from Toronto. They lived apart during their four-year marriage, while Mary raised funds for her newspaper. The arrangement seemed to work. However, at her husband's death at the age of 35, Mary was pregnant with their second child. Like many widows, financially she was in trouble. Mary continued to struggle in the male-dominated world of journalism. Sexism was widespread at that time, and she had to hide the fact she was editor of The Freeman. In the 1860s, Mary returned to the U.S. She earned a law degree, continued her teaching, and was active in the women's suffrage movement until her death in 1893. I'm Donna Kakonge. Thinking globally and acting locally. You're overstretching. I need it. Okay. <laughs> when you feel it in your Achilles, you're overstretching because you can't stretch tendon. It's stronger than your bone. In a downtown Montreal gym, Dr. Stephen Stark corrects the flaws in the stretching of an exerciser. Stark knows what he's talking about. He's a podiatrist who wrote an illustrated book called The Stark Reality of Stretching, published by Stark Reality Publishing. Stark is the first and only podiatrist in the province of British Columbia to specialize in sports medicine. In 1986, he opened the Podiatric Sports Medicine Group in British Columbia, which concentrates on the treatment and prevention of injuries as a result of biomechanical problems. Through the people he has treated in his practice and his own injuries caused by incorrect stretching, Stark has been inspired to write his book to educate people. He says oftentimes people confuse a stretch with an exercise. A stretch by definition, uh, hills work, degrees work, I mean there is no equivocation here. A stretch is a sliding elongation of your sarcomeres, which are in individual muscle fibers, past their current resting length. And that last word is so important to understand our mistakes, past your current resting length. So it means the muscle can't be expending energy. A woman runs on the treadmill for 30 minutes. A man with plenty of muscles bulks up with the free weights. Another man furiously pedals on a stationary bike. Dr. Stark's book says that everyone should stretch before and after a workout, and the illustrations show the correct way to do this. But how many people actually know how to stretch correctly? Can you tell me about your stretching routine? Um, I usually do the stretching after my workout. It, it makes me feel much, um, I don't know, content. I do a little one before the workout, but not as much afterwards. Yeah, I, I do the, um, the legs, of course, uh, after doing the treadmill and my back, um, um, the, the arms, but mostly on the legs. I concentrate mostly on the legs. Do you feel you stretch correctly? I, I feel I do. Did you 
stretched before working out today? No, I haven't. I never stretch. I uh, I do warm ups. You know, I'm uh, I do a lot of running. So what I do is uh, go on the uh, stairmaster for 15 to 20 minutes to get uh, to warm up my legs, and then I'm able to run without any uh, pain or you know any stretching. Have you ever had an injury from working out? Uh, yes, I have. I uh, tore my hamstring. People should be stretching every day to get a better performance out of their bodies, Stark says. He explains that stretching is very important in preventing hip and back pain throughout your life. Everybody's muscles, especially the lower extremity muscles, shorten with repetitive usage and fatigue. And they'll stay short the rest of your life if you don't know how to stretch. And short muscles in your legs change your joint position, they change your stride length, and it will eventually lead to damage in joints and ligament structures. So the only way to prevent that gradual insidious shortening is by to do the maintenance throughout your life. And that maintenance is, the maintenance is stretching. Stark also says that you need not be an athlete to stretch. The average person takes 2,000 steps a day, and through this repetitive motion, they are shortening their leg muscles. In the book, Stark points out that we have operating manuals for our cars, VCRs, and CD players, just about everything in our lives except our bodies. He writes the Stark Reality of Stretching as a comprehensive operator's manual for the body. This is Donica Conge for RCI in Montreal. Ivory, spatula, ABCDEFGH. These are certainly not John Smith names. They are unusual names created by parents and in the past vetoed by the Quebec government. Article 54 of Quebec Civil Code makes it possible to protect newborns from names that may cause them ridicule in the future. When a baby girl was born to Rosemary Havens last year, she decided to name her Stormy. Stormy was just a name that I've always liked. And when I found out I was pregnant, you always choose out a, a girl's name and a boy's name. So Stormy was our choice for a little girl. It was just a name we liked. It was unique. The name is definitely unique, but the government of Quebec felt that the name was unsuitable for Haven's child. Haven contacted Howard Galganov, a language rights activist, for help. She says she should have the right, not the government, in naming her child. I don't think it was fair. The rights to choose your child's name should be the parent's decision. It's something that you should have 100% say in because this child is, is born of your love. And so the, the decision to name your child should remain with the parent. I don't think a parent would consciously choose a name that would cause their child ridicule. Another family, who had named their newborn Ivory and the name was rejected, decided to fight for their naming rights too. Galganov then contacted a lawyer named Brent Tyler. Both helped Ivory's and Stormy's parents in keeping their children's names. And now the government is introducing a new law, Bill 34, that will give more rights to parents to name their children whatever they want. Lawyer Brent Tyler says the Quebec government had too much say in what parents name their kids. We have to decide as a society to what extent we're going to allow the state to intervene in what are purely private matters, private decisions. I can't imagine a decision that's more intimate that parents are called upon to make than choose the name, 
choosing the name of their children. Tyler also says this new law will do away with the jobs of those who evaluate the names. When children play, they can sometimes be cruel, and this is why the government will still have some say in the naming of children, only in cases where it is for the best interest of the child. Citizen Relations Minister Robert Perot is the one who put the new bill on the government's agenda. He says many jurisdictions throughout the world have similar laws over the naming of children. It is meant to protect a child from future ridicule. For example, I heard that once a parent would want to give to his children the name uh, A B C D E F G H E A, but that's not a name. Very, very few, few, few times you 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 meet some people that that have very strange ideas. So. What we are doing now is that we consecrate the right to the parents to choose the name of their child, and that's the first thing we do. Then, but differently, we keep a way that the court can say, "Well, that's as no, that is not in the interest of the child." So we we block it. Perot says there will be very few cases in the future where the government would have to intervene in a parent's choice of names. He also says that the new bill should be passed by the end of June. This is Donica Conge for RCI in Montreal. Dinner is being prepared, and this gathering is not made up of older people cooking meals for themselves, or parents making meals for their older children, but young people cooking their own meals. They are taking their own nourishment into their hands. Okay, so what I'm doing right now is I'm adding the stock that I've made from the lime leaves and the lemongrass into the soup,、uh, which is actually not truly vegetarian because it has some fish in it.、Um, But that's—it's hard to not have a little bit of fish. This this is a coconut and a fish soup with lemongrass and lime leaves. That was Emily Moody explaining a vegetarian meal. Her family often finds her a bit peculiar for her eating habits, but not all her family sees her that way. And my stepfather does this thing with—he makes a vegetarian turkey. Which is he uses all kinds of like rice and lentils, and then he has a a mold and he puts it in there so that when you take the mold off, it's the same shape as a turkey.、Wow. Yeah, so one of these days I'm going to try that. How does it taste? It tastes great. It's it has all kinds of different flavors. It's nutty, and、um, it's not turkey, but it you know it tastes it tastes like a vegetarian、um, like a doll or something like that. Marissa Zwan became a vegetarian while traveling to Europe, and at first it was an ethical choice from observing animals. She could not consciously make the decision to eat the animal she found so beautiful. From being a vegetarian, she has maintained a healthy diet, including lots of protein, and she also reads books critical of the meat industry. So now it has become for her a health issue, political issue, and an ethical issue. It's easy in my own life to not eat meat. Because I'm cooking for myself, and I'm living away from my family, and I'm the one that's most of the time choosing the foods I eat. People who will serve me food, and that's a time when I have to question 
when it comes to all these like plates of meat in front of me and people questioning why I'm a vegetarian and whether it's healthy for me and oh come on eat some meat be a be a big girl um that's when I question well what will this little bit do and I start questioning all my beliefs and I don't necessarily break because I haven't and I'm very I'm very proud to say that I haven't but I'll sit and I'll wonder well this little bite if it'll just like maybe make my grandmother happier make my aunt happy perhaps I'll have it Marissa has been a vegetarian for more than a year, and as the strain of defending her position diminishes, it is getting easier for her to proudly say she is a vegetarian. Meanwhile, at Emily Moody's house, her dinner guests gather for the first course of soup. Delicious. Oh. Well, you're not what it, what it, it has a refreshing, what creamy like quality, a mixture of the lemongrass and the milk. It's almost like a chowder, really. Very nice, actually. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thinking globally and acting locally was not enough for Stefan Corivo. He is one of the creators of Alternatives and is now in charge of relations with supporters. What is now known as Alternatives began five years ago. The program sends Canadian youth between ages 18 and 30 on internships in the developing world. Young people go to places like Chile, the Philippines, Eastern Europe, India, Pakistan, Morocco, South Africa, all over the developing world. They get to do things like design websites and work on media projects. Corivo explains why the program is called Alternatives. We uh, are not doing it in the sense of sending people over there, teaching people. We do believe that people have the knowledge and have the capacity. What they have, what they sometimes lack, is resources to implement those things. So what we're providing with is mainly through either financial support or sometimes they need some breeding hair uh, politically because there have been too many of them being put in jail or regime has been too corrupt or stuff like that. So we don't send missionaries like people to do the job on behalf. We try as much as possible to have a, uh, an equal relationship. Gavin Andrews was personally involved with one of Alternative's global efforts. He was one of 15 people who worked on a South Asian initiative back in 1997. He also held the position as coordinator of Alternative Surfing the World program. That program puts young people through three months of training while in Montreal. Then, participants spend six months overseas. This is what Andrews went through. He designed websites in India. I worked with a really cool organization called Communalism Combat. They worked to, to um, educate uh, the community against, the, against communalism, against ethnic uh, violence, uh, to promote peace uh, and reconciliation between religious and ethnic communities in, in, in India, but also promoting peace between India and Pakistan through youth projects that they have in schools. The website served to develop a network between different community organizations in India. The program Andrews did is called Surfing the World. There is a new program at Alternatives called Media Alternatives. Recent graduates of journalism and communications programs work for three months in countries like Pakistan and Morocco after a six-week training period. Participants work for different organizations in communications and journalism-related areas. Corinne Lacasse is the coordinator of both the Surfing the World and Media Alternatives programs. She went on her own internship to Latin America. She says the objective of Alternatives is understanding. The objective of uh, doing this work here is to know more the social community in our country 
to see what exists, what the people are doing, and to see what we can do as a person to help our society or involve uh, ourselves in our community. And after, uh, to have a kind of solidarity uh, between the community group of Quebec and uh, of other countries. Alternatives' political involvements have included such efforts as bringing peace to Palestine, promoting Nelson Mandela as the first African president to South Africa, and encouraging democracy in Nigeria. Creator Stefan Korivo says that alternatives addresses some important issues in a way that the party line does not. The will to do something that was out of the beaten path. Uh, we uh, were not satisfied, certainly by the official lines that we are getting from either the mainstream media or the government or the large agencies uh, on one hand. On the other hand, we also don't feel satisfied with very, very local and um, pinpoint proposal and solutions. Um, we think that some challenges are global and need to be faced on a global level. Participants and alternatives include youth that are either unemployed or underemployed. They must raise a $1,000 participation fee, the money going towards the cost of the program. Youth do receive a stipend while in alternatives. Funding comes from three main sources, divided up by 60, 20, and 20. 60% of the program is funded by government agencies such as NetCore Canada, Industry Canada, and the Canadian International Development Agency. 20% comes from non-governmental organizations and the last 20 from private donors. In the future, with the South Asian Initiative, Gavin Andrews was part of, Alternatives plans to move into Bangladesh. This is Donica Conge for Radio Canada International, Montreal. It wasn't only in the states that people had slaves. In the early days of this country, many white people kept slaves too. Many white men stole the lives of blacks with slavery. In return, many of these slaves stole from their masters. In the case of Freelove Hazard Allen, her life was also returned by slave owners. Freelove Hazard Allen was a slave of a colonel in Charlottetown. She became the key figure in a trial for theft. In the spring of 1796, she was charged with theft, along with her husband and another male slave. All three were described as servants of the colonel. The theft took place in the barracks of the commanding officers on March 21, 1796. Freelove admitted to stealing coins and clothing with a value of 25 pounds, but she gave no reason for her actions. Freelove's husband and the other slave were accused of aiding the crime and accepting stolen goods. The judge in the case owned a slave. One of the assistant judges owned four slaves. The other assistant judge had been robbed by a slave a year earlier. There were at least three slave owners among the jurors. It was clear to Freelove that she wouldn't get a break in this courtroom. Section 18 of the Act relating to treasons and felonies made embezzlement by slaves with a value over 40 shillings or two pounds a felony. Hanging was mandatory on conviction. Freelove's husband and the other slave involved were convicted of receiving stolen goods. They were acquitted on the charge of inciting and aiding Freelove to commit the crime. 
The men got branded with a T for theft on the palm of their left hands and received 500 lashes on their bare backs. After that, they returned to jail until each could post a bond to keep the peace. Freelove was convicted of larceny and sentenced to death. She was scheduled to hang April 5, 1796. Many white women in Charlottetown didn't want to see Freelove hang. A petition was started right away to save her life. The petition with 33 signatures was sent to the lieutenant governor. The petition had some conditions. It said that Freelove acknowledged her crime and would agree to be indentured for life and sent to the West Indies or elsewhere and sold. If she returned to PEI, she would be executed. Freelove agreed to the conditions. Since she was illiterate, her signature of X was marked for her by one of her sympathizers. The women who signed the petition displayed a sisterhood with Freelove. Petitions for clemency were common, yet they almost never were made for women. Perhaps that's why it was a success. On May 9, 1796, Freelove was given 40 days to leave Prince Edward Island. That is the last heard of Freelove Hazard Allen. It is assumed she left Canada alive and never returned. I'm Donica Conge.